You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and on this episode, I'll be talking to Anna Blakeney, Assistant Professor at the University of British Columbia in the Michael Smith Labs and School of Biomedical Engineering. Anna runs a lab developing next-generation RNA vaccines and therapies, and we discuss her work and the future of personalized medicine. Also joining me is Amelia Morano-Williams, Stylus's Senior Editor for Consumer Attitudes and Technology, to talk me through the latest medtech innovation. But now, let's hear from Dr. Anna Blakeney. So, talk to me a little bit more about what mRNA technology is and, and why it's become so important sort of during the last couple of years, especially with COVID. I guess in the context of vaccines and what messenger RNA is, I like to kind of start from the top and think about what are we actually trying to do with a vaccine? So the general approach is to train your immune system to recognize a protein on the surface of a pathogen. So for SARS-CoV-2, that's the spike protein on the surface of the virus. And we have many ways of introducing that protein into your body. So we could introduce, you know, an inactivated form of the virus itself. We could, you know, make the protein and administer the protein. But with messenger RNA, this is the way that we give your cells the code to make that protein and then generate an immune response. So this is, you know, obviously very useful for vaccines because we can scale it up and and make it synthetically. So the speed at which we're able to make it is very fast compared to traditional types of vaccines and typically costs a lot less as well. But there's so many more things that you can use RNA for. So the I think that's the really exciting thing in the field now is thinking about, okay, so we've seen this work really well for, you know, mRNA vaccines against a virus. You know, where do we go next? It would be interesting to discuss what was our COVID vaccine response? Was it was it made possible by this technology? Is this really the, at the heart of the fast response? Yeah. So the the beauty in messenger RNA, it's really a platform, right? So I don't know if you've heard scientists say that before, but what it really means is that it's quite modular. So whenever you need to make a new mRNA vaccine, it's a very, you know, futuristic feeling process now where you type the code, the DNA code into a website, you order it and it comes in just a few days. And that's what you use to make your new RNA vaccine. And that process of, you know, making the DNA and then making the RNA from the DNA is the same for any RNA vaccine that you're going to make. So that is what's really fast about it, right? So if you're making a protein or you're making, you know, a viral vaccine for every new virus or every new protein, you have to go through and optimize making that, making sure it's in the right confirmation. And that takes, it's a very time consuming process. So that's really why we saw the Moderna and the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine. That's why they were able to go from designing a new vaccine to a human clinical trial. And you know, Moderna did that in just 66 days. So let's go back to this point about the, what this technology can do beyond vaccines. Because as you were saying, there's, there's a lot of applications for this and some of them are, are really quite future facing, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Something that people may not appreciate is that actually prior to the pandemic, 
BioNTech, so a German company that co-developed the BioNTech and Pfizer vaccine that you know, many people have had now, their, one of their main focuses is cancer vaccines. So they also did infectious diseases, but they've been working on these personalized cancer vaccines for a long time. So the way that that works, and they actually have some really interesting clinical data on that for a number of different cancers, but the way it works is, you know, many of these like biotechnologies have come online now such that if someone has a tumor, we can actually take a sample of that tumor sequence it and see what are the proteins that are unique to your cancer cells. And then in the same way that we would train your immune system to recognize a virus, we can also then train your immune system to recognize the protein on the surface of those cancer cells. And so that's kind of more along the lines of that personalized medicine, right? Where it's actually unique patient to patient. It's not just an off-the-shelf treatment. A lot of our cancer therapies, it's like a very archaic approach of just, we're going to kill every quickly dividing cell in your body, right? Where you have tons of side effects and it's really pretty nasty treatments for a lot of these chemotherapies. But for this, it's really quite personalized and you get this RNA vaccine that they're able to make and it then leads, you know, your immune cells to that tumor to kill those specific cells. Wow, that's incredible. It's really interesting, this idea of personalized medicine. I mean, you know, a lot of our audience is, is, is brands and brands in beauty and health and wellness in particular, where that seems to be becoming a very big trend, especially sort of personalized beauty products that sort of you work out what, what your skin needs via genetic analysis. Is this a sort of trend that you think is, is going to yield some, you know, really interesting results? I think there's a lot of potential for that. And just even in, you know, we see in essentially like every clinical trial, there's just this heterogeneity, right? Like you, people are different. They have different makeups and a lot of it is governed by genetics. You know, there's a lot of lifestyle aspects to it too, but I think there's a huge potential for understanding the people's health identities in a way, and then thinking about what products would they potentially need. And I think the cool thing about like why mRNA, I think will make such a big difference in this space is because it's so modular and easy to manufacture, right? So because you can just easily make a new mRNA vaccine or protein replacement therapy, you design and make that in the same way for every application. So it doesn't matter if you're trying to make a vaccine or you're trying to make, you know, a protein replacement therapy or an antibody therapy, you make it in the exact same way. And so right now we're still seeing a lot of innovation in the manufacturing space of how easy it is to make this on like a lab scale. But you could imagine in the future that clinics or hospitals might have their own kind of like personalized medicine laboratory to them where it's like, okay, you get an order from a doctor where it's like a patient needs this cancer vaccine and then you make that. And then, you know, an hour later, somebody needs a protein replacement therapy for this specific protein. And you're able to make that using the same exact pipeline. So I wouldn't be surprised if we started seeing kind of like decentralization of the manufacturing where we don't need these big pharma companies to make this anymore. We can make it on a much more like local and individualized level. Interesting. It's sort of like on-demand on demand medicine. Um, but it's I exactly. So like you kind of be the complement between being able to like sequence and understand what's going on with someone to then being able to like manufacture a treatment for them that doesn't cost a million dollars. We've talked a little bit about 
the future applications, but where do you want to be with this in five, 10 years? Or where, do, where would you imagine we could be in terms of what sort of changes we'll see in delivery of uh, medical vaccines and also just delivery of more personalized r- responses? On kind of a personalized medicine level, I I really think this kind of like local manufacturing and understanding what a patient needs specifically for them is just more possible than ever. Right now, the sequencing is quite affordable. The manufacturing is still going to be a challenge, but I think actually probably through some partnerships with the tech industry and thinking about, okay, how do we actually make this, you know, you could imagine like a portable manufacturing site, right? And then just every hospital or clinic ends up having one of these. I think it's highly likely that that would actually become a thing one day. More from Anna in a moment. Now I speak to Amelia Morano-Williams, Stylus's Senior Editor for Consumer Attitudes and Technology. Amelia recently published a report on Stylus about how technology is increasingly playing a leading role in health management from prevention to diagnoses and remote patient monitoring. I asked her about the most interesting innovation she'd seen in this space. So our advancing med tech report does dive into many of the themes that Anna discusses around personalization, homogeneity, and even education, actually, in healthcare. You know, especially as these companies are pushing bleeding edge tech innovations, there's a lot of questioning around how people and patients will respond to them. And within our report, AI and its impact on healthcare was probably one of the most interesting and some of the most controversial topic as well that we encountered. So there was an interesting dichotomy that we came across. Lots of funding going into AI healthcare tools, actually $3 billion first half of 2022. But actually, there are very few healthcare jobs that currently require people to have skills involving AI analysis. Now, this was from a particular Brookings analysis that suggested that this means that actually we're not seeing these tools currently being deployed in healthcare systems. And this also means that patients just right now aren't seeing the benefit of these tools, so they remain quite skeptical of them, and it seems kind of like a scary other force coming into their health, which is obviously extraordinarily personal. Research from South Korea shows that people still really want their diagnosis to come from a doctor, even if AI might help make that diagnosis more accurate or speed up the process to the diagnosis. And that's actually really interesting because on the flip side, AI promises to really revolutionize healthcare and bring those faster diagnoses that I just mentioned. So MONAI, now that's Medical Open AI Network, is an algorithm that was developed by NVIDIA. It's currently being used in select U.S. hospitals, and it is something that can help physicians quite quickly analyze medical imaging test results. Not only does it help them analyze quickly, it can also take into account cutting-edge research. So it can take into account just papers that have just been published. One example that we used in the report was a model for breast density, which can be more accurate for detecting tumors. And using this AI algorithm, it can detect tumors in as little as 15 minutes. There's another model that can be used to predict future trajectories for lung function in long COVID patients. So there's really a lot of very practical uses that do have a tangible impact on people's everyday lives but it's still not something that's reaching all patients. That being said, listeners might be happy to know that we are seeing personalization come through in some more immediately accessible, more consumer health-focused ways. So consumer health testing in particular is becoming more widely available here in the U.S. 
People can now go to their local CVS and purchase test kits to assess everything from thyroid function to vitamin D levels. And this is quite relevant, especially because those tests aren't usually included in just standard blood panels here in the U.S. More aspirational also is Spren. Now, this is more on the fitness side of things, and it is an app that uses smartphone cameras as biomarker sensors, and it then gathers data on body composition, heart rate heart rate variability, stress, recovery, and even aerobic fitness. So it's less on that pure medical side of things, but we are seeing that overlap and intermeshing between fitness and medical. So really fitness is kind of helping these early adopters get ground and will probably spill over into the larger medical system like we're seeing with the Apple Watch, for example. But I'm also, there's even more here, really interested in companies that are developing tools to detect disease before it occurs. Now, this is a really interesting space where AI is quite a large player. There's a company called Gabby based here in the U.S. Now, it uses an algorithm to assess an individual's risk for breast cancer, catch it in its earliest stages. Its goal is to eliminate deaths from breast cancer. Clearly is doing something similar for heart diseases, acknowledging that even people who are healthy might have underlying symptoms in their really early stages. And if we address it early on, then that really lowers the chance of something serious happening later on. In Japan, Fujitsu is working with doctors on an algorithm to detect pancreatic cancer in its earliest stages and really lower the quite large mortality rate for that. So it's really interesting to see how these companies are coming together to try and create really practical solutions that help, you know, early disease detection and increase people's longevity overall. So I think it's just a really exciting time overall to be tracking healthcare innovation. As Anna mentioned, you know, we are really seeing this move away from homogeneity and towards personalization, and that is with the help of Bleeding Edge Tech. Amelia's report is available to read now for Stylus members. If you're not already a member and would like to find out how access to Stylus could benefit your business, email innovation at stylus.com or visit stylus.com slash membership. Now back to my interview with Anna Blakeney. I just wanted to finish with to talk to you about your you're very prolific TikToker, which is which is fantastic. And I'd I'd love to hear about like, you know, clearly I, I assume the 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 answer to the question of why you're doing this is is that there was a lot of misinformation around during the pandemic and, and you know you you're you're aiming to combat that, I assume. But obviously you're you're still on TikTok, you're still posting regularly, and I it'd just be great to hear about why you're on that platform and what what you what you think the benefits are. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, TikTok has all kind of been experiment to me, but you're right. Like my motivation for being there is really to educate people about RNA biotechnology and vaccines. So something that I really realized during the pandemic, although this isn't a, you know, it's not a new concept, is just there's such a gap between the research that happens and what the public knows about, right? So like we've been researching RNA vaccines since 1990, but for many people, 2020 was the first time they ever heard about that technology. And so I think we do have like a real duty as scientists and researchers to communicate what we're doing to the public like as we're doing it, right? Otherwise, you're kind of playing catch up. And I think that is what caused a lot of the, you know, vaccine hesitancy and everything that we saw during the pandemic, which is that, you know, people have never heard of this type of vaccine before. Like, of course, they're going to have questions about it, right? And honestly, a lot of those questions, does it change your DNA? You know, what is the long-term safety effects? These are the same questions that scientists were asking 10 years ago, right? So it's just that by the time that scientists were getting asked it, they were like, 
we already know the answer to this. Like, right? Why are you still asking us? Right? Like, just trust us. And so, I think really building that trust and communication has to be kind of like a a daily or you know frequent practice, right? As opposed to when you're like, here, I made this vaccine. Aren't you guys so excited about it? I think one of the main things that I've observed is that I guess the way we typically talk about it and what you hear in the media is that people are either like pro-vax or anti-vax. And then you hear about vaccine hesitancy and it's talked about very shamefully, right? Like if you're vaccine hesitant, something is wrong with you. But I don't think that's true at all. Like I think from my experiences, most people fall into this vaccine hesitant category, but it's not a bad thing. It just means people want to understand what they're putting into their bodies, which is like what we should all be doing, right? It's just, I think we've kind of let people down by not doing enough education and and science communication about these different technologies. So I think that's part of it is that, you know, I think vaccine hesitancy is a good thing and people are asking the right questions. They just need to be able to have access to people to answer their questions. And I think TikTok is unique in that it has quite a learning culture to it, right? Like people go on there to learn about like all different things they would never learn about. And so I think that's actually why it's really useful is like there's this whole culture about people want to learn about things. And so that's why it ends up working. And it's, you know, I think a really great tool for scientists. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at we are stylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.